Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We're in the final two weeks of live Today in Ohio episodes, or at least new Today in Ohio episodes. Today in Ohio episodes. We'll be taking a break over the holidays for a couple of weeks. Still, lots of news to talk about on the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston, all set up for a big week of news. Let's begin. Are Ohio Republicans dying at a higher rate than Democrats from the coronavirus? And Lisa, why might that be? I think this is repercussions from the bubble of misinformation that some people surrounded themselves with during the COVID uh, pandemic. But there was a study done at Yale University by three researchers, Jason Schwartz, Jacob Wallace, and Paul Goldsmith Pinkham. And what they did was they focused on excess deaths in Ohio and Florida from January 2018 to December 2021. So that covered the pre-pandemic era. There were 577,000 people in this study. So at Looking at the baseline of deaths both in both states, Ohio and Florida, Republican and Democrat deaths were the same in 2018, and they were also the same in January 2020, just before the COVID shutdowns. But through the summer of 2021, during the summer of 2021, the disparity started to appear. So the GOP excess death rate nearly doubled that of Dems during summer 2021. And then the gap widened even further in the winter of 2021. So why lower vaccination rates obviously is is the problem. You know, there is a lot of vaccination hesitancy amongst conservative people. The uh, media outlets that they were listening to, you know, called COVID a hoax or said, you know, vaccinations weren't necessary and so on and so forth. And Dr. Beth, Beth Liston, who is a, a representative in the Ohio House from Columbus, she says it's a correlation study, not a causation, but she said there's similar results in other studies. Um, social media algorithms we know push misinformation and fear to people who are willing to see it. And it kind of puts them in a bubble where they don't see anything outside of that misinformation uh, bubble. And Berkeley Franz, who is a professor at the Ohio University College of Osteopathic Medicine, she said, said that the population shifted from urban because at first urban areas were getting hit really hard with COVID and, and people were dying of COVID in, in urban areas. But then that totally shifted to rural areas. And she says that says broader things about how their ideas about science in general. 
It also says something about the state of American media. I mean, you could make the argument Fox News killed people by peddling that false narrative that the vaccines were dangerous and creating this partisan nonsense. People died as a result. I mean, you can see it. The numbers don't lie. Republicans died in larger numbers because of all the vaccine nonsense that we saw. Remember at the statehouse, all the crazies at the statehouse peddling this stuff? Mm -hmm. These leaders because they led people astray in their anti-science rhetoric, killed people. Mm-hmm. It's This is a shocking study. When this rolled across last week, you just sat back and thought, man, this is real time. This is what we've come to in this country. People are so partisan, so dedicated to my tribe winning, they're, they're willing to let people die as a result. And it also shows how social media algorithms, you know, can really, really forward this kind of information and push people further and further into a bubble where they don't see any other perspective at all. Well, and that that's the frightening thing. There was a time where people all had a local newspaper that they relied on to be down the middle. And because of the challenges to that industry, they're watching Tucker Carlson, who's basically telling them to do stuff that is dangerous for their health. It, 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 the, the numbers don't lie. It can't, you cannot be any more sure of what happened these last three years. And it's been crazy time. It's today in Ohio. NOPEC has been controversial of late, so we went back in time to remember why this thing was created in the first place. Laura, what did we find about its inception, and how did it do over the years, and why are things crashing down upon it now? I have to say, I learned a lot from Sean McDonald's story, because NOPEC was just this kind of amorphous, like, yeah, yeah, it does something with energy. Uh, But it's really not even that old, and it makes if you if you need a refresher on NOPEC, you got to real read a story, but I'll give you the recap. So NOPEC is the Northeast Ohio Public Energy Council. It's a nonprofit. It's been buying electricity on behalf of residents in greater Cleveland since 2000. Later, it added natural gas. But 2000 is when more than 100 communities voted to form the aggregation, and there were 95 of them that all joined together to try to get better deals on electricity for their consumers, for their residents. It's run by a board of directors made up of local officials. Each community has a representative and one vote in the General Assembly of NOPEC. There's also counties that can elect a board member. The problem is NOPEC's been in the news because their rates got so high this summer that state regulators said they might take away their right to represent communities in the electricity market, not natural gas, just electricity, and they might not renew their certificate to sell. The thing is, it really comes down to timing. And what NOPEC had been doing is trying to buy electricity close to when it needed it for its customers because electricity rates had been trending down. And then this past summer when rates were climbing, you know, the Ukraine was invaded and everything got more expensive. They were having to buy at more expensive prices while other energy companies had bought at an auction far, far before that. Yeah, the story does go into great detail to explain what happened recently. Mm -hmm. I'm sad to say I remember the creation of it. I didn't need the primer to get me up to date. I was here when we were having this discussion. I guess I'm the only one. But this, this, it's good to remember why this came together when we decided as a state to deregulate partially 
the utility delivery that everybody knew you or I couldn't negotiate on our own. We didn't have any bargaining power. And so they created the ability of cities to do so. And they came together under NOPEC. And NOPEC has saved people a lot of money. I, I still resent that I have to opt out if I want to every year. I hate the automatic opt-in that, um, that was created with it. But this did put NOPEC into a much better frame of reference. It'll be a shame if the PUCO stops NOPEC from being able to be a seller. Uh, and you, you know that there are probably forces that have been right. caught up in the corruption probe that are trying to get rid of them because they did save everybody a lot of money. And you would hope that the Utilities Commission would recognize this is a good force. And what they did here was a good thing. They realized we're costing people money this year. Bounce them. Let's get them right. back to the base rate. They did the right thing. They dropped about a half a million people. And I think there are competitors that don't want NOPEC to exist anymore because they're competitors and they want to make more money. But NOPEC estimates it saved people um, $300 million up until 2019. And then that's when the guaranteed discount program went away. They had a couple of different contracts that were automatically percentage savings on what the companies were offering places like Energy Harbor, and they ended. So we don't know exactly how much they're saving now, but that is the idea, right? That they were the ones that went to bat for the consumers to save them money. And it's just, it's, you know, you, you hear about somebody doing something bad, you automatically think corruption, like that's where our heads go in 2022, uh, in Ohio anyway. This, it's not like they did anything wrong. It was a, it, timing issue. And I think everybody's learned a lot from it. And, you know, when, because the First Energy and folks, they were buying their electricity at auction, they might be paying more in the future. It's, it's really a, a you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, the stench of corruption is tied to the Utilities Commission. I mean, we've seen that. They're, they're, they don't represent or have not represented the interest of consumers. They've been in the pocket right. of utilities and NOPEC did represent consumers. They weren't in the pocket of anybody. And so it's kind of important that they remain because for some reason, no one in government will bring this utilities commission to, to, to task, to make them represent both the consumer and the industry. They're just anti-consumer. Right. It's, so the filings are due for this decision December 12th. So we're probably going to see a flurry of that before beforehand. It's today in Ohio. We've reported about the waste of a lot of federal stimulus, stimulus dollars in Northeast Ohio, and that's a shame because this one-time money could have been transformative. Our Stimulus Watch reporter, Lucas Duprile, went looking for some good news in this and says sometimes it can be transformative. Layla Howe. Yes, Lucas has watched a lot of ARPA money flow through local governments this past year, and there are ideas that are clear winners, and there are those that are big-time losers. So he pulled together this roundup of a few of the most promising uses for ARPA dollars in our region. And Lucas judged the ideas based on whether they hit a few criteria. To make the list, they had to create or expand on an innovative approach to a long-standing social issue, provide enough money to potentially see a difference, and are backed up by either data or success stories of similar programs elsewhere. Top of the list of winners is using ARPA dollars to create crisis intervention teams that work in tandem with police to respond to calls related to people facing mental health crises. Those are the calls that we know sometimes end in tragedy when police are dispatched to deal with them alone 
and they take a more aggressive approach with the person in need of help. In fact, Lucas tells us in his story that in in a five-year stretch ending in 2020, a quarter of all police shootings involved someone with a mental illness. So Cleveland is really embracing this model this year by doubling the size of its crisis intervention teams and deploying them in all the police districts. If if the statistic that Lucas cited was true for Cleveland, then then I really think this approach could go further than almost anything has toward meeting the demands of the federal consent decree. Another idea that makes a giant impact is broadband expansion. Lucas highlights Summit County's $35 million ARPA investment in creating a fiber optic cable ring to help first responders in Summit's 31 municipalities. It would provide internet speed seven times faster than the national average. And, you know, although this expansion is just to help boost response to emergencies, the idea here is that it really sets up the infrastructure for public use in the future. So it's very forward looking. And then the final project Lucas gave a shout out to was Lakewood sewer improvements that alleviate some of the the debt burden on the city's residents. Fixing Lakewood sewer system problems will cost $300 million. So Lakewood is investing $25 million in ARPA money, which is over half of its total $47 million allocation toward that effort. And Lucas noted that other cities are investing ARPA dollars in their sewer infrastructure too, but not as much as Lakewood. And he points out that the mayor there could have spent that money on pet projects, as we've seen many municipalities do, or or more splashy projects. But putting this big chunk towards sewer improvements alleviates debt burden down the line. Yeah, we've seen so much of this money wasted. The you know the worst example is Pernell Jones and his cronies on the Cuyahoga County Council flushing sixty six million down the drain on little pet projects that no one's going to remember. Uh, it was nice to see Lucas look for some silver lining, some people doing interesting new things. So it's a good story. Check it out; it's on Cleveland dot com. What is going on at a state-run facility for adults with intellectual disabilities in Highland Hills? Are clients being physically abused? Lisa, I think the most troubling part of this story is the challenge that investigators face in getting reliable witness testimony because of the population they're having to deal with. Right. And excuse me, we're talking about the Warrensville Developmental Center for Adults in Highland Hills. Eight employees there have been indicted on patients abuse and evidence tampering charges, 17 counts in all that date back to 2018. So an investigation by the Ohio State Highway Patrol began after an October 2018 incident in which uh, employee Terrence Shambly was accused of hitting and dragging a 19-year-old patient in his care. There was video, but because of the angle of the video, the evidence of what happened is incomplete, and a grand jury failed to indict Shambly on this. So the attorney general's office took up the probe and they found more incidents, one of them involving that very same 19-year-old patient and two other uh, caregivers, Monique Williams and Michael Webb. That was just a month after the original one. And then uh, Michelle Starr is indicted for uh, November 2018, where she incident where she dragged and tackled a patient, although her attorney, Gary Levine, says, Why did they wait four years to file these charges? And it would be physically impossible for his client to have done that to the patient. And then Christopher Collier, he's uh, uh, accused of assaulting a 
31-year-old female patient in his care in April of 2020. Three others were charged with false statements and evidence tampering. They were not charged with assault. Ryan Robinson, Tawana Jordan, who are both still working there, and Leyland Walker were just, you know, charged with the false statements and evidence. And they were, they witnessed the events. But when they were investigating the original events, they felt, you know, they were talking to witnesses who were patients and one of them wasn't even really verbal and he kind of punched his fists together to, you know, to describe what happened in the incident. Yeah. I just, I don't know how I, I credit them for, for being diligent and really working to do this investigation, but this must be about the hardest kind of case to prosecute because they, they said many of these people they can't use as witnesses because of their disabilities. And even those that they were able to communicate with, it was really hard to communicate with them. So it, if this goes to court, they're, they're just going to be challenged in trying to do it. But if they really do believe there's this abuse going on, they've got to do something about it. So it's a it's one of the more interesting criminal cases that's come along because it it shows the difficulties of prosecuting these kinds of crimes. It's almost like you need cameras everywhere in a facility like this, that that's the only way to get hard evidence. Exactly, exactly. And this video camera, you know, wasn't placed well enough to really get, you know, solid evidence on one of the assaults. So that's a good idea. Okay, it's today in Ohio. I I just have to say, I can't get my mind off of this. Dave Joyce saying he will support Donald Trump for president even after Donald Trump said over the weekend he wants to suspend the Constitution. It's amazing. I put a note out on subtext that went out about 15, 20 minutes ago, and I've already got 53 responses of people who are outraged by what Joyce said. I mean, it's just a stunner. We'll be talking about it tomorrow. We're going to follow up with Joyce today to say, what are you talking about? You took the oath to support and defend the Constitution, just like the president. How can you just blow this off and say you would support him if he's the candidate? Anyway, moving on. (laughs) Ohio officials are finally working on the broken down unemployment system. And they are finding some of their goals to be contradictory. How are they trying to solve that, Laura? Well, it is this kind of conundrum. How can you tighten anti-fraud security without exacerbating delays in paying out genuine claims? So the state is trying to work both sides. And there's already been questions saying, you know, a, a normal amount of people who have legitimate claims are getting flagged as fraud, which is the exact opposite of what was happening during the early days of the pandemic when they were pilling up paying out just way, way too much money in fraud and taking way, way too long to answer anyone's concerns. The state paid actually a billion dollars in fraudulent claims out, which is insane, actually. Um, So there was a hearing Friday about a legislative committee studying ways to improve this. And both DeWine's administration and lawmakers are moving forward some fixes. So there's a Senate bill, 302, It would require the state to use tax filings to verify employees' income if employers don't respond within 10 days. They would be allowed to access photos from state driver's license database to help verify identities and mandate that federal unemployment benefits offered in the future, they must establish a verification system for the applicants using state tax information. That's because the bulk of the fraud paid out was in the extra federal uh, pandemic unemployment benefits, not in the regular state ones. 
Yeah, I it, it, <laughs> we we talked so much about how bad this was. There was so much fraud and there was so much confusion. Nobody could get them on the phone. And it, it is a, it's just a quandary, right? Because if you want to make it easier for people to access their benefits, you make it easier for the scammers to steal the money. And, and you've got to, to button it up. Other government agencies don't really seem to have these problems. They can build a secure system that's still easy to access. But for some reason, the unemployment system just seems just rife with problems. Yeah, the good news is they've hired a lot more people. But remember how they were working on that, what was it, like 2004 system for paying out the unemployment benefits? They're still working on that because the people they were paying, their contractor, there's fraud there and people are like indicted. So that's on hold. So we don't have a better system than we did two and a half years ago, almost three years ago. But they do have more people working and they say they're getting about 85% of people paid within three weeks. So that is an improvement. Before the pandemic, it was 87% were paid within 21 days. So, um, but yeah, even as recently as last October, almost a quarter of people weren't getting them within that time frame. So we are improving, uh, but a lot of people are getting flagged for fraud. Hopefully, if they are, they can prove it really quickly. I mean, it's just that's another hurdle to jump through. Okay, it's today in Ohio. What is Dan Gilbert's long-awaited vision for the riverfront behind Tower City, and what does our esteemed architecture and planning critic Steve Litt think of it all? Well, my favorite part of the story was Steve reminding us that the plan they originally had for a casino behind there was like a giant refrigerator rising next to the <laughs> I river. actually laughed out loud at that line. <laughs> That's funny you should say that. This this sounds pretty exciting, but of course, you know, as Steve points out, it's still in the pie-in-the-sky phase. Gilbert's real estate company, Bedrock, unveiled its its plan to remake 35 acres of the Cuyahoga Riverfront with Tower City Center serving as, as a key gateway between downtown Cleveland and the waterfront, which would be just teeming with development, uh, according to this schema here. This is a project estimated to cost $3.5 billion, and it's intended to bring thousands of residential units, office space, public parks, and things like that, and lots of recreation opportunities and retail all along this stretch of the Cuyahoga River that's pretty desolate today. The development would happen over 15 to 20 years, and by the time it's done, it would be this riverfront community, and the public would have access to the river. Bedrock is is already starting to put together the land it needs to make this plan a reality, which includes the old Sherwin-Williams headquarters and another Sherwin-Williams facility on Canal Road. But the project also requires four, $450 million in public infrastructure upgrades. So that will be up to the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County and the state to, to put that together and make it happen. Plan calls for really dramatic changes to existing structures in the city. Tower City, like I said, is among them. Bedrock owns that building, and they're talking about extending the building out and over the bluff down toward the river to create a pedestrian thoroughfare between Public Square and the riverfront, which sounds super cool. But West Huron Road stands in the way of that plan. So Bedrock is saying, how about remove that stretch of road? East-West traffic would shift a block north and could continue down Prospect before returning to Huron. Canal Road would also need to be rerouted to maximize the potential of the plan. But there's just so much going on in this plan. Gardens, walkways, park spaces, buildings nestled around the federal courthouse. Tower City's you know, beautiful porch that opens up to the riverfront in, this, in the plan. 
um, you know, an amphitheater with steps that drop down to the water's edge and waterfront promenades and eco-friendly infrastructure, green roofs and electric vehicle charging stations. It's like a riverfront utopia. <laughs> yeah, the story is a reminder of how much in Cleveland we just completely squandered our, our waterfronts, Lake Erie and the river. I did like the other idea that came from the planner, which was get the bus traffic off of Superior yes. running down the front, with yes. which Frank Jackson tried to do and, and in a political year got blitzed because of it. But that destroys public square. Buses going through the center of it doesn't make for a park-like setting. I was so impressed he said that. He'd have to work with RTA on that. But, you know, the mayor gets to appoint people to RTA. So if he believes in this project, he can point people that'll make that happen. Yeah, Steve Steve Litt liked that idea too. And but he, you know, like I said, he Steve raised the question of feasibility for this given the huge public investment and in infrastructure that has to happen first and and he questioned a few of the design elements. You know, for example, the proposed Tower City porch would have a large timber frame roof and Steve Steve was kind of like, "Meh." about that. <laughs> he wonders whether that would fit in with the the architecture of to Tower City's buildings. And he thinks it's going to block the view of Terminal Tower from the river and the park that's below. But he loves the idea of using Tower City as a public point of connection to the waterfront. And and unlike, you know, past proposals, this one doesn't seem too crowded. But he points out that that so many have tried and failed to propose a revisioning of, of the riverfront over the years. So he's he's really taking a wait and see approach on whether this one is going to catch fire. Look, I, I gotta say, I loved this this idea. Mm -hmm. Like the I, I when Steve called it the backside of Tower City, I just thought that was so perfect. Because if you ever drive around down there, it's like, mm -hmm. yep, there's something cool happening on the other side, but the river's front is just basically forgotten, and it feels really dirty and mm -hmm. industrial, and yes, and yes. not safe. And, and we pay so much attention to our lakefront. And we talk all the time about Burke Lakefront Airport and all the plans. And I know we have the flats and everything, but we don't talk a whole lot about accessibility to the riverfront and connecting it to downtown. And the idea that Tower City would be a connector and, and revitalize that entire space that when I was a teenager was just, you know, this really iconic you know, cool destination. Like I was so excited about this. I like texted people. I mean, I know it's not a done deal, but I was like, this would be awesome. And Dan Gilbert does have a record in Detroit of doing transformative projects. He's largely single-handedly responsible for what's happening in that city. So there's some history here. When he wants to move things, he can do it. He called it a market maker, right? What the question is like, does the market need this? And he said, we're making we're making it. Like people are going to want to live here and work here just because of this space. And I think if you make it inviting enough, that's possible. It's today in Ohio. We've been talking a long time about infant mortality in Northeast Ohio, especially about the inexplicable disparity between the rates for black and white infants. Lisa, what does the latest data show? Are we making any headway? We are making some headway. Um, according to 2021 data from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, but the racial disparity still remains. So the infant mortality rate is measured by the number of babies who die before their first birthday per thousand live births. So in the city of Cleveland for 2021, that number was 10.5. That's down from 12 in 2018. If you look at Cuyahoga County, uh, the rate for 2021 was 7.4 deaths per thousand lives births. That's down 
from 8.4 in 2018. But when you start to break it down by race, it really looks bad. So for 2021 in Cleveland, black Cleveland babies, the infant mortality rate was 14.4 per thousand births. That's down from 17.5 in 2018, but it's still huge. When you look at white Cleveland babies, the infant mortality rate for them last year was 6.3. So that's almost half, or, you know, half as much as black babies. And the number in 2018 for white babies was three. So we also saw there were certain neighborhoods all on the east side with extremely high rates, including Huff, Buckeye Woodhill, Central, and Collinwood Nottingham. They had infant mortality rates ranging from 20 to 27, from 2017 to 2021. What's amazing about this this issue is when you take away all the variables, you just remove all of the things about income and geography and all of it, it's still there. And there's a belief, a growing belief, that this is about implicit bias, the way people are treated in the medical situation. But that recognition started to come, I don't know, five years ago now. And it does not seem like we're making a difference. It, there, people always try and find, well, that's because, that's because. But the researchers have erased all that. They've adjusted for all of it. And that discrepancy, that disparity is still there. And we just do not seem to be able to overcome it. Yeah. And it, it affects black women of all socioeconomic strata. I mean, it's not just poor black women. It's all black women, it seems like. And of course, the, it's the usual issues, lack of access, lack of prenatal care, housing employment stressors. And this is a big one, a shortage of diverse providers, which I don't know that that's something we can fix right away. But, you know, people are more comfortable seeing a doctor who looks like them. Okay, it's today in Ohio. We've got one more. What is Metro Health's replacement for Akram Boutros's CEO, Erica Steed, going to make? And how does that compare to Boutros? Layla? Erica Steed's compensation will include her $900,000 base salary and with a total comp cash compensation package between $1,057,500 and one point three. Well, $1,372,000 when you factor in bonuses. But that's less than what it turns out Boutros was making. He made between $1.7 and $2.7 million a year. That adds up to $10.6 million since 2018, including $4.2 million in bonuses. And of course, the Metro Health Board says they didn't know about $1.9 million of that. And in fact, he was setting his own metrics and conducting his own performance evaluations to earn that money. Julie Washington asked MetroHealth if, if Erica Steed plans on changing the performance-based variable compensation plan, and MetroHealth said it's too early to tell how she's going to handle that. She has a lot to learn pretty quickly about the operation of the hospital, okay. and that's her top priority here. But wait, wait. It's not too early. It's never too early to say we will no longer have an executive who sets his own measurements and measures himself. I was so disappointed by that answer. That, I mean, that should have been automatic. Of course, this will never happen again. We're working on a story about how over time the Metro Health boards of various eras have completely failed to do their oversight as they did here. This was a volleyball just lobbed up by Julie. Hey, are you going to change the system in which they could have just spiked it and said, well, the one thing we know for sure is no future CEO will be able to secretly rate themselves. 
And well, they didn't. The board is already saying that what Boutros did was not allowed under the rules. So she doesn't need to change anything about that to to abolish that that way well, of wait, handling though, bonuses. But, she but she knows though, now she's on alert that that you are not permitted to evaluate yourself and grant yourself bonuses. The board is already saying that he broke the rules. Right. But it, but he did it anyway for five years. So obviously a change is needed. So the answer would have been the change we, is Boutros is gone. <laughs> yeah, but you but you're not protected against this unless you say why we are not changing our system, putting in safeguards and guaranteeing to the public that the public's money will be protected. I, it just it was a very flippant thing. Oh, it's too early to know what because honestly, with this. the safeguard is the board should have looked at the list of people getting the bonuses. The, then, the safeguard is on the side of the board. Okay, right? then then that's the what answer. Could Steed have, what this, could Steed change no, about the system? Out, hear me out. Then say, look, this isn't for the incoming CEO to change. The board dropped the ball here. We're changing our internal controls. We're going to make sure this you doesn't happen You think she's going to say that before she even takes, they, takes her they, position? They, hey, guess what? The board dropped the ball. We didn't talk to her. The board gave us the answer. Well, they're not going to say that either. No, they should be. I mean, we had an editorial over the weekend saying they've got explaining to do. They have serious explaining they to do. They do. They because do. Because repeatedly in history, this board has dropped the ball. And it's time for some, in fact, look, really, th this should now fall to the county council. They should call for a full-scale forensic audit. Or we ought to hear from Keith Faber, the state auditor, saying, I'm coming in the Metro Health and doing a whole scale audit to see what else, what other financial irregularities might exist there. This has been a blow to the public confidence, like nothing we've seen. And there's explaining needed here. Absolutely. And Steed said she's she's focused on on restoring that trust in the in the Metro Health system. So, you know, that's a vague answer, but you know, I I, I do believe that the the safeguard should have been with the board. She starts today. <laughs> what, a, what a way to start. Welcome to Cleveland. Welcome to Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> it's today in Ohio. That does it for Monday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.